This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The founder of this company, 10 years ago, was trying to sell his house and went through real estate agent after real estate agent, and they were all talking a great game. And this guy who is selling his house, the founder of this, uh, this company, he's, you know, he's kind of an important guy and kind of, you know, should get the best treatment. And he said to his wife, if this is what it's like for us, how do people who have no clout ever get around this? So he started a company and it went into business, I think, three years ago. Their deal is, their word is their bond. And they are just like you. Now, how can I say that? Because I'm the founder of the company. We have a thousand agents across the country and they are people that listen to this show. And so when you go through real estate agents, I trust it's sent to somebody who already you already know their sensibilities. They already are cut from exactly the same cloth. There's got to be a better way. There is real estate agents. I trust dot com. And go for Mike Slater in three. Two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusader is America's greatest country in the world. How are you? Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for uh, for sticking with us the last couple weekends. I had the uh, great joy of going to visit my brother in London. He lives in London. He has an 18-month-old son, little guy, little Henry. And uh, I've never met the little well, I met the little guy when he was crawling, right? But now he's a little older, more fun to hang out with. Uh, so I got to hang out with him for a while, and we went to London, and then we spent some time in Italy. Um, so it was a nice vacation time off with the family. So thank you for sticking around, and uh, Broomhead did a fantastic job as always, so I want to thank him. And uh, we got a lot to do here. Now it's, uh, I don't want to say we're coming down to the wire. We still got a couple more months, but it's getting exciting. Especially getting exciting here in California. California, last state to vote, June 8th, I believe. California's never in play, right? It's, it's always decided before California. And maybe not this year, right? It might come down to California, which is why Ted Cruz is going to be here in San Diego on Monday. So I'm going to be introducing Ted Cruz uh, at, at his rally. He's doing the first, first person to have a rally, first Republican to have a rally in California. I'm doing that on Monday, so... Uh, that should be a lot of fun. And, and then again, California's in play. Most delegates by far, 172 delegates. And uh, it is game on. Now, I say that about California, but I want to put an asterisk. When I say California's in play and it may come down to California, big old asterisk there. And the asterisk is that Donald Trump will still be in the race by then. Huh? I want to make a prediction here. Uh, I made it on my local show the other day. I got a ton of feedback from it. Mostly positive. And I want to make the prediction again here. Now, all I ask before I make it is that you not dismiss it out of hand. Right, that's all I ask. Just, uh, keep it open mind. Listen to it, and, and, and without being like, "Oh, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard." Just say, "Okay, I hear it, and I'm going to let it sit. I'm going to let it simmer. I'm going to let it stew for a couple days, and and get back to me next week. Give me one week of this prediction, just sort of sitting in your mind. Maybe if I can ask this, maybe watch the next week, and uh, put it through everything you see, everything you hear, everything you read. Put it through this filter." 
and see if it makes sense. And if it doesn't, that's fine. Next week, come back and say, Slater, you were way off. That's totally fine. But all I ask is you not dismiss this out of hand. Keep it in the back of your mind and observe. But I think you may have the same reaction I had when I finally came to terms with this prediction. Uh, now that I'm now that I'm on it, right? Like I'm I'm all in on this prediction. It kind of feels like when you watch The Sixth Sense or Fight Club or some movie with a big twist at the end, and you say, "Oh, now it makes sense." Like, it, like not now. Spoiler alert for The Sixth Sense. I think that movie's been out for long enough. I can give you the ending. You watch The Sixth Sense, and you go, "Oh my gosh!" Oh, you. Oh, yeah, he was, he was dead there, too. He was dead, though. Oh, that's why that did uh, oh. Same thing with Fight Club or something, right? You're like, oh, I get it now. That was my reaction to this prediction. My first reaction was no, and then I let it sit for a few days, and I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Okay, here it is. Now, in order for this to initially make sense, you got to get into Trump's mind. you got to pretend that you're living in a Trump world, in the world that he lives in, which is very different than our world. Trump is first and foremost a power broker, and I want to give that example. I want to give an example of that coming up in a little bit with Roger Ailes. Remind me of that. Trump is a businessman, shrewd, but it's all about power for Donald Trump. Not necessarily in a nefarious way, just power, having the upper hand. In Donald Trump's world, the only thing better than being president of the United States is being the guy who picks the president of the United States. Slater, I'm still not with you. I'll come right out with it. I don't think Donald Trump really wants to be president. I don't think he really wants to be president of the United States. He entered the race for a bunch of different reasons. Publicity, yes, he wanted to be a protest candidate in different ways, wanted to bring attention to different issues, uh, but mostly I think just wanted the prestige that comes with, with running and getting attention and all the rest. And I think he's surprised by how well he's done, and I think now he's looking for a way out. He's going to find a way out. He's going to frame his entire run as, as, a, as a great victory, right? He'll talk about how he kicked Jeb Bush out, how he took on the establishment, how he made immigration the number one issue, how he changed the whole dynamic of presidential politics. He'll frame all these victories that he had. He'll step out of the race and then behind the scenes have a sort of unofficial presidential apprentice game to figure out who's going to get his thousand or so delegates. He will walk away the hero where this whole time everyone thought that Donald Trump was going to destroy the Republican Party. In the end, he's going to be the guy who unites the Republican Party. He'll walk away a hero, give his thousand delegates away to Ted Cruz or whoever, say he could have won if he wanted, and he'll walk away with the upper hand. Again, the thing that's better than being president is being the person who picks the president. And then being the person that that person he picks is beholden to Donald Trump for the rest of his life because Donald Trump was the essential kingmaker by giving that person his thousand delegates. So I think Donald Trump waits until he wins a majority of the states, 26 states, and then he drops out of the race. That's my prediction. Now again, hold on. Don't. You're rolling your eyes. 
dismissing it. You go, oh, oh, come on, Slater. You've been gone for two weeks. I've been looking forward to come back, and this is what you give us? Let it sit. All I ask is you let it sit for a week. I was listening to a show the other day, and the two guys on it were saying, why, why isn't Donald Trump working on the delegates. Why isn't he playing the delegate game like Ted Cruz is? Ted Cruz is doing an amazing job of getting down to the specific party like, like committee lit level and, and working on picking the right delegates for the convention. Why isn't Donald Trump doing that? Right? He said he's going to surround himself with the best people and the best people are going to know how to do that game. So why isn't he playing that game? And they couldn't answer that question. And remember the old question back in uh, in Iowa and some other of the early states, like, why doesn't Donald Trump have a ground game? He doesn't have a ground game, and he's not playing the delegate game because he doesn't really want to be president. It's the only answer to that question. He doesn't really want to win. He's just trying to win enough states so he can say he could win. Before he rides off into the sunset. I still don't believe you. Think about this. If you were Donald Trump, would you really want to be president? I, I told this to someone the other day, and they said, Slater, but being president of the United States, you're the most powerful person in the world. No, you're not. Not really. It's a horrible, horrible job. Look at um, any picture of President Obama, W. Bush, Clinton, when they started to be president, and then eight years later. Right? They look horrible. It's a terrible job. You are constantly being pulverized by everyone. There's a ton of responsibility, like life or death responsibility. And it takes way more than a big ego to to want the job. You're not king. You know where you are king? Trump Enterprises. If your name is Donald Trump, you are the king of Trump Enterprises. And that's where people kiss your butt and do your bidding. And you can live your life at Mar-a-Lago with your supermodel wife. But if you're president of the United States, you got at least 535 people in Congress who want to make your life miserable. I don't think he wants it. In Art of the Deal, and he never wanted it. And he still doesn't want it. In Art of the Deal, uh, Trump says he never goes into a, a deal when there's a downside. Right? He always limits his risk. By not taking risky deals. He says there was one time he took a risky deal and it was the, um, the football league, uh, the USFL, the alternative league to the NFL, and it failed miserably. And he learned a lot of lessons there. And he said, I don't go into risky deals anymore. That's how I win all the time. I don't take a risky deal. Being president, there's way too much downside. Way too risky. Way too likely that it will destroy his brand. He doesn't want it. He did think he could run and get some attention, and then that would be great. But he doesn't want it. 1-888-900-3393. Let me throw you one. Uh, I want to take a break. I'll do one, one another argument here, and then I got a few more. Can we come back, and then I'll, I'll drop it. We'll be done with it. This was just a few days ago. Stephanie Gagielski? You can take this for what it's worth, but she was a strategist for the Make America Great Again Super PAC, and she wrote this on her blog, again, just a few days ago. She said, quote, almost a year ago, recruited for my public relations and public policy expertise, I sat in Trump Tower, okay? So she goes to Trump Tower, meets with all Trump's people as a political strategist. I sat in Trump Tower 
and was told that the goal was to get the Donald to poll in double digits and come in second in delegate count. That was it. The Trump camp could have been satisfied to see him polling at 12% and taking second place to a candidate who might hold 50%. His candidacy was a protest candidate. I'll say it again. Trump never intended to be the candidate. But his pride is too out of control to stop him now. He doesn't want the White House. He just wants to be able to say that he could have the White House. So I was a strategist for the Make America Great Again Super PAC. He never wanted the job, and I still think he doesn't. He's looking for a way out. one 800 Slater Radio on Twitter. Again, just ask that you let that to sit and simmer in your brain for a week. As you watch the news, run it through that filter. The filter of, gosh, maybe he doesn't even really want the job. And uh, let's see what you think in a week. one 800 Mike Slater. Show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. The founder of this company, 10 years ago, was trying to sell his house and went through real estate agent after real estate agent, and they were all talking a great game. And this guy who is selling his house, the founder of this, uh, this company, he's, you know, he's kind of an important guy and kind of, you know, should get the best treatment. And he said to his wife, if this is what it's like for us, how do people who have no clout ever get around this? So he started a company. And it went into business, I think, three years ago. Their deal is, their word is their bond. And they are just like you. Now, how can I say that? Because I'm the founder of the company. We have a 1,000 agents across the country, and they are people that listen to this show. And so when you go through real estate agents I trust, it's sent to somebody who already, you already know their sensibilities. They already are cut from exactly the same cloth. There's got to be a better way. There is. Real estate agents, I trust.com. Mike Slater. Slater, let's do one more quick segment on this and then we'll, we'll, we'll be done with it. Um, now that it's out there, <laughs> out there forever. Uh, I don't think Donald Trump really wants the job. And I think he's looking for a way out. And he's looking for a way to give his his thousand delegates to whoever will kiss his butt the most for them. Because then he will have the upper hand on them forever. And he can still salvage his brand without actually having to be the president because he doesn't want to. Uh, Just shared an insight from Stephanie Gagielski who was a strategist for the Make America Great Again Super PAC, who said a year ago she went to his office and she was told that the plan was to have him get second place all along. Uh, another example, Sherry Jacobus, she's a GOP strategist. She wanted to be his communications director and uh, didn't get the job, but I don't think this is sour grapes. She says, I believe Trump senses he is in over his head and doesn't really want the nomination. He wanted to help his brand and have fun but not to be savaged by the Clintons if he's the candidate. He wouldn't mind falling short of a delegate majority, losing the nomination, and then playing angry celebrity victim in the coming years. Uh, the only thing I disagree with that is if he leaves, I don't think he'd play the angry celebrity victim. I think he'll play the uh, hero on white horse who saved the day, who united the party. And uh, they, uh, I'll put it like this. 
If Donald Trump drops out and gives his delegates to Ted Cruz, I bet Glenn Beck will become a, t- a, a Donald Trump fan. <laughs> All right. Even Glenn Beck will be like, oh, Donald, great job. Thanks for playing. Okay, see you later. Everyone will love him. So I don't think he'll be angry. I think he'll leave the hero. Uh, John Fund, National Review, says that he talked to a high-level Trump staffer, like, a, like on the business side, not the candidate side, on the business team. And this was uh, earlier on when Trump just skyrocketed in the polls real quick. And this is what John Fund says. He says, a group of his staffers, again, on the business side, sat around the office one day, imagining what the reaction of their boss would be if he actually won the presidency. And one staffer told me, we concluded that he really would say, guys, what did you do to me? I had a great life. Now I have to move to the White House? So even his staffers in, the, in his business think he, don't, he doesn't really want it. I'll give you one last example. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger, former governor of California, he admitted just a year or so ago that when he said he was going to run for governor on Leno's show, he admitted that when he said that, It was a joke. He said he was joking. He said he didn't, he just wanted to see what the reaction would be, right? I think he had a movie coming out or a show or something, and he thought it'd be good for publicity, and he had no plan to be like what he was going to do when he won, or if he won, he didn't intend to win. He had no plan on how to win. He didn't, he didn't want to run. He said he never even ran it by his wife. He thought it would be funny and it would get some attention. Two months later, he's the governor of California. Okay, that's, that's from Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's what he said. So this isn't unprecedented to have a celebrity step into a race just for publicity purposes. And it wouldn't be unprecedented if that celebrity said, oh, gosh, I, I, guess I'm, I guess I won. One last story. Trump always wants the upper hand. Always. He always wants the upper hand. Do you, um, do you guys watch House of Cards? I, I, didn't, I didn't think I tried not to for a long, long time because I was like, why do I want to watch like dramatic interpretations of like politics? Like I, I got enough politics, but it's good. So Frank Underwood, who's the president in the show, he always has something on whoever he's dealing with. Right. If he's going to go and make a deal with someone, he always has some piece of information on that person in case they get out of line. And when that person pushes back, he plays that card to get them back under his thumb. Right, So Frank Underwood in House of Cards always has the upper hand. Trump is the same thing. He'll always have dirt on someone and therefore be in control of that person. It's how he negotiates in the business world. He always has a card to play. I'll give you an example of this. Fox News. Have you noticed, obviously you've noticed, Trump going after Fox News. Why? How, how can he go after Fox News? Here's how. Fascinating article in the New Yorker. Sorry, guys, it's been so long since I've been here. What, what time do we go out? go out? 28, right? Okay. Um, the author of this piece in The New Yorker wrote a biography about Roger Ailes back in 2014. It's called The Loudest Voice in the Room. Roger Ailes didn't like it. He fired his longtime PR advisor, Brian Lewis, because he thought that this guy was the source of the information for the book. Fired him. So Lewis wanted severance. He went and he hired a big-time lawyer, Judd Bernstein. 
Now, it turns out Bernstein, the lawyer, worked for Trump back in the 90s. And Roger Ailes liked Donald Trump. So they both asked Donald Trump to mediate. So think about this. Donald Trump ran the negotiations, the severance negotiations, out of his office in the Trump Tower to try and figure out what this guy's severance package should be for being fired. This is Donald Trump. He said Roger had lawyers, very expensive lawyers, and they couldn't do anything. I solved the problem. And in the end, Roger Ailes paid his former PR guy millions of dollars to go away. But in the process, Trump learned everything that this guy was planning on leaking about Roger Ailes. Which means if Ailes were ever to go to really go to war with Trump, Trump has an arsenal to launch back at Roger Ailes. Now, I don't know what those things are on Roger Ailes, but it's enough. It's enough that's worthy of paying someone millions of dollars to go away and keep quiet. And Roger Ailes went to Donald Trump to mediate and gave him all this ammunition against him. Trump has the leverage over Fox News. That's how, that's how he can go after them without tr- Fox News going back after Trump. Trump will always have the leverage over anyone he works with. And again, if he can give his thousand delegates to, let's say, Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz will owe everything to Donald Trump and Donald Trump will walk away and always have the upper hand. Mike Slater, show the blaze radio network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network. Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders changing gears here a little bit. So Monday, the governor of California, Jerry Brown, signed uh, minimum wage. Raised it 10 to $15 an hour over the next six years. Crazy. Um, new poll was released a couple of days after that of San Diegans. Uh, 74% think that raising the minimum wage will hurt the local economy. 77% think it will cause prices to rise. 70% think it will cause businesses to cut hours. 69% think that no one will be lifted out of poverty because of it. So you're thinking, well, what the heck? How did it pass? Here's why. The last question. Do you think the government should set the minimum wage at all? And 57% said yes. That's why we lost. Because I was thinking, so I was, I was gone last two weeks, and I come back Sunday late at night, I wake up Monday early morning, and I turn on the news, and, and there's Jerry Brown signing the minimum wage to $15. And I said, what? Like, how did this happen so fast? Now, obviously, it's been a conversation for a long time, but not this bill just happened like that. I said, whoa, like, how did we lose that argument that fast? And we didn't lose the arguments Right here is that most, a vast majority of people, at least in San Diego, think that you know it's going to hurt the economy and, and hours cut, all the rest. They get the economics of it. But a majority of people still think that the government should set a minimum wage. That's why we lost.
we successfully convinced people that prices will rise and hours will be cut and it's bad for the economy. But we missed the last question. Should the government be setting a minimum wage at all? And because a majority of people still say yes, yes, the government should be setting a minimum wage. Now it's just a matter of how high. And that's what Jerry Brown, the governor of California, decided. He decided how high it's going to be because a majority of people think that it should be something. It's the old story of a guy who meets a woman in a hotel bar and says, ma'am, will you come up to my room for me, with me for $10? And she says, ah, get away from me. And he says, will you come up to my room with me for $1,000? And she goes, no, I'm calling the police. And he goes, ma'am, will you come up to my room with me for $10 million? And she says, okay. So she gets up to his room And he says, well, I'll tell you what, instead of $10 million, how about I pay you $100? And she says, what kind of woman do you think I am? And the guy says, I know what kind of woman you are. We've already established that. Now we're just negotiating the price. And when a strong majority of people still think that the government should be setting any minimum wage, nothing else matters. Now we're just negotiating what the minimum wage should be. But if you're going to leave that up to a single party rule up in Sacramento, like we have in California, if you're going to leave the negotiation up to a single party rule by the Democrats, they're going to set it really high. They settled at 15. The the governor even admitted that it makes no economic sense. Isn't that incredible? So we we talked about it on Monday and I didn't hear his uh, speech. And on on, someone uh, after the show sent me an email. They're like, hey, Slater, you know, Jerry Brown said it makes no economic sense to raise the minimum wage. And I said, aha, funny joke. No, it turns out he actually said that. Here's the clip right here. And a worker is worthy of his or her hire. And to be worthy means they can support a family. So economically, uh, minimum wages may not make sense but morally he's up there morally 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 economically doesn't make sense morally it makes sense no you know what jerry morally the government should not be setting prices that are negotiated between two free consenting adults that's the bottom line morally government should get out of the way of businesses so that they're free to invest and spend and grow so that wages go up naturally morally Our government-run education system should graduate kids who know how to read and do math so that they can command higher wages. That's your moral obligation, to get out of the way, and if you're going to be in our education system, do a better job so kids can read. Morally, you should stop pretending to be people's saviors because those same people who feel saved today are going to be fired tomorrow and making $0 an hour, which is the real minimum wage. made a video about the minimum wage is on our Facebook page. Now you can check it out. Mike Slater show on, uh, on Facebook. Jerry Brown admits that it's bad economics. It's bad for employees. It's bad for employers, but it sounds good in theory. What an incredible acknowledgement of the giant chasm between their utopian vision and reality, but they don't care. Now, Why would Jerry Brown do this then? I want to go a little deeper. Are you with me? Can we do this? Now, once we go here, it opens up a whole new can of worms. Okay, once we go here, it's a whole new level. 
But I think it's important that we know the real end game of the minimum wage hike. Because a lot of people will say, oh, it's uh, we're going to raise the minimum wage, or he wants to raise the minimum wage so that um, he gets more votes. Yeah, yes. But the people who want that are going to vote for him anyway, right? The, so it's not he's not gaining new votes. Maybe strengthening people who would already vote, but he's not gaining any new votes. So yes, but let's go a little deeper even. He says it makes no economic sense, so it's not to improve people's lives. We know that's not going to happen. It's the Cloward Pippen strategy. You're a Glenn Beck fan. You know all about it. Cloward Piven strategy outlined in 1968 by two professors at Columbia, sociologists by trade. And their strategy is to overwhelm the welfare system, put so put as many people on it as possible, overwhelm it, so that everyone says, All right, listen, this this is this is inefficient. This is inefficient, this is unsustainable. We got to scrap the whole thing, scrap the welfare system, and just have a guaranteed annual income for everybody. That is the left's new goal. Guaranteed minimum income for everybody, no matter what. Everybody just gets $30,000 or whatever they decide. That's the ultimate goal. And if Hillary wins, especially, that's the conversation for the next four years. Watch it, mark it right now. The next four years, if Hillary wins, the conversation is going to be about a guaranteed minimum income. If it's if Hillary doesn't win, then it's going to be had in different states like California. But that's the new mission. After healthcare was passed, and it's very similar, and I'll combine the two in a second. Um, but after universal healthcare was passed, now it's uh, guaranteed minimum income. There's a couple of different names for it: um, universal income, unconditional income, um, big. You maybe hear, hear it called big. Um, basic income guarantee. I don't know what focus group's the best, but whatever focus group's the best, they'll come back with. But that's the goal. Overwhelm the system, the welfare system, so it implodes, and then replace it with a guaranteed national income. Now, I know what you're saying, Slater. That sounds very conspiratorial. I got a transcript here of Jerry Brown on the radio in 1955. Again, governor of California. He said, quote, brace yourselves for this. He said the conventional viewpoint, conventional viewpoint, says we need a jobs program and we need to cut welfare. But I believe just the opposite. We need more welfare and fewer jobs. That was Jerry Brown when he was governor the first time. You may not know that Jerry Brown was governor already, and now he's governor again. Right? And here he is saying, I let that sit in. He says the conventional wisdom is, you know, everyone's saying, we need more jobs, less welfare. But Jerry Brown says, no, no, that's backwards. We need fewer jobs and more welfare. Fewer jobs, more welfare. I know it's taking a second for you to, like, interpret, like, like, what? Like, it's so counter to what you just assume everyone wanted you assumed everyone wanted more jobs less welfare it's not true you got people on the left who want fewer jobs more welfare and that's why jerry brown's raising the minimum wage because he knows that most people will be fired and those people will go on welfare most people making between 10 and 15 dollars an hour now will be fired when you raise the minimum wage 
He knows that that's going to happen, and that's exactly what he wants. And I know that sounds crazy. I get it. Because you're thinking, how can someone say we need more more people on welfare? We need fewer jobs, more people on welfare? How can that be? It's Jerry Brown. Okay, so you're saying, Slater, okay, I'm, I can, I can barely go with you here, but why? Why would he want that? He says, quote, I'm talking about welfare for all. Without it, you're going to have warfare for all. Without a universal health care like every other civilized country, without a minimum level of income, that's guaranteed minimum income, this country will explode. The guaranteed income is one way. If we were smart, we'd get rid of welfare and give people a family assistance like they do in Europe. Okay, so it was Jerry Brown in 1995. I guarantee you he hasn't changed his thought process. So that's the plan. Guaranteed annual income, guaranteed minimum income. Everybody just gets $30,000 for doing nothing. Just for breathing, you get thirty grand. Now, that's not a pipe dream. And this is the, if, if you take nothing away from this hour, other than my prediction in the first two segments, uh, let it be this. This is what's next. Guaranteed minimum income is next. It's not a pipe dream. Switzerland, I believe, just a couple days ago, the um, their version of Congress or whatever voted down a guaranteed minimum income, but in June it's going to be on the ballot in Switzerland for the very first ever unconditional income. That's what they call it in Switzerland: unconditional income. Everybody gets two thousand six hundred dollars a month times twelve, thirty-one thousand dollars. <laughs> so everyone in Switzerland gets thirty-one thousand dollars. Is going to a vote in June. And it'll probably pass, and then it's going to happen here in America. And it's going to happen because it makes sense on the surface. Not a reality, but on the surface, it makes sense. It will make sense. They'll make it make sense because they'll say, oh, my gosh, our welfare system, it's so overwhelmed. It's so overwhelmed. We're going broke. And, and you know what? There's just not enough jobs for people. No one can find any jobs. It's unbelievable. You know, people graduating high school, graduating college, they can't find jobs. People with low skills, low education levels, little experience, they can't find jobs. Yeah, they can't find jobs because you raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. They're not going to say that, of course, but you're going to know that. They're going, oh, people just can't find jobs. They're on welfare. It's over. Oh, it's just, it's just too much. It's too much. You know, we should just scrap welfare and let's come back with a more efficient system. Let's just have a guaranteed minimum income for moral reasons, for dignity. That's the reason for the minimum wage hike. This is another step towards guaranteed annual income. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. More to do today. Only got a few minutes here. I want to talk about uh, Ted Cruz. This is uh, concerning to me. Not not, not him, uh, but he was going to go speak at a Bronx high school the other day. But the school canceled it because so many kids threatened to walk out in protest 
Uh, this is what the kids sent to the principal. A letter. A group of students will be leaving during fourth period as an act of civil disobedience. Uh, the presence of Ted Cruz and the ideas he stands for are offensive. His views are against ours. I love that line. I want to get back to that. His views are against ours and are actively working to harm us, our community, and the people we love. First of all, it's not civil disobedience to walk out of school. That's just breaking the rules. Not going to go into it now, but civil disobedience is when you break a specific unjust law. Going to listen to a presidential candidate is not an unjust law. It's a rule. (laughs) You're going to stay in school to go to this, but it's not an unjust law. Whatever. But how sad that the actions from our college kids, right? The whole shutdown movement is now seeping down into high school. His views are against ours. Therefore, we're not even going to listen to him. That is so sad. Like, go hear him. Hear what he has to say. Kids call the kids called him misogynistic, homophobic, and racist. I have no idea how Ted Cruz is misogynistic. I don't know how he hates women, but but here here's the real problem. They're just kids, right? It's a shame that the adults. It always comes back to the adults. What's what's your deal? The adults should say, "Listen, kid, you're going to go to the auditorium on fourth period, and you're going to listen to the guy." who might be the Republican nominee for president. And you're going to sit there and you're going to listen. And then we're going to talk about it after. And we could talk about all the ways you think he hates women and gay people and black people. But you're going to sit there. And and if it hurts your feelings, then tough. You need to learn to grow up and be able to listen to people who you think you disagree with. Because you know what? In the end, you might not disagree with him. And if you do disagree, then that's great. But at least you heard him without any other filter. Isn't that the responsibility of the kids? Like, or excuse me, the responsibility of the adults? Say, listen, kids, you might disagree with his policies, but that doesn't automatically make someone a racist either. <laughs> so what a failure by the, by the adults here. To cave because the kids tried to walk out. Jeez, what a joke. Uh, 188-900-3393. Oh, my goodness, we have so much to do next. I want to talk about something that Trump does that uh, I don't know how much longer you can get away with it. We'll do it next. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Hope you're having a great Saturday so far. Um, talk a little bit about uh, Trump here, and then we're done. We're dropping for the day. Got three things. I don't know if we're going to get to them all. Uh, I want to talk about the power of doubling down. I want to talk about sleeper triggers. It's a technique that Trump uses, sleeper triggers. Uh, but let's start with confusion first. The art of confusion. CBS News, uh, Will Ron, to be specific, wrote an article on this the other day. They're, they're finally starting 
to try and figure him out. <laughs> they're they're not generally they're not successful. But at least now they're stepping taking a step back and and trying to figure him out. The headline is: Is Donald Trump confusing everyone on purpose? Is Donald Trump confusing everyone on purpose? Yes, is the answer. <laughs> I need a whole article, but yes, is the answer. Uh, it's called strategic ambiguity. We've talked about it before. Actually, we talked about it on CNN a couple months ago. It's his way of being all things to all people. Barack Obama did it with hope and change, right? Change you can believe in. What kind of change? Doesn't matter. Just change. And everyone could just project whatever they wanted onto that. Trump does it in a different way. He does it by being as vague as possible and, and sometimes literally saying opposite things at the same time. It's the art of confusion. It's nothing new. Let me give you an example first. Um, so Chris Matthews, this is like a week or so ago. Chris Matthews asked Trump. He said, well, this is what he said. He said, quote, just say it. I will never use a nuclear weapon in Europe. Right? So they're talking about using nuclear weapons in Europe. And, and Chris Matthews is like, All right, Trump, just say it. Say I will never use a nuclear weapon in Europe. And Trump said, no, I won't take any cards off the table. Which is fine, right? Trump, master negotiator. It's all about not taking any cards off the table. That's fine. And Chris Matthews says okay and then and then moves on. But 40 seconds later, Trump says, I'm not going to use nuclear, but I'm not taking any cards off the table. Those are direct quotes. So what did Trump just say? So you're, you hear that. You're walk, you walk away from this interview and I say, oh, what's Trump's position on using nuclear weapons in Europe? It's literally whatever you want it to be. It's whatever you want it to be. If you're someone who thinks we should maybe possibly use them in, in a certain circumstance, then you say, oh, Trump thinks we should use them if it's necessary. If you're someone who thinks it's absurd, then you're going to pick up on the part when he said, I'm not going to use nuclear. And you're going to say, no, of course, Donald will never use nuclear. He literally said both things within a 43 seconds man. So you can take away from it whatever you want. Remember when Ben Carson endorsed Donald Trump and said there's two Donald Trumps? Remember he said there's the showman and then there's the cerebral behind the scenes Donald Trump? So at that press conference, Donald Trump agreed. In the beginning, he agreed. He said, yes, there are two Donald Trumps. And then three minutes later to the very same group of reporters at the very same press conference, he said, quote, I don't think there are two Donald Trumps. There's one Donald Trump. So is there one Donald Trump? Is there two Donald Trumps? Does he think there's one? Does he think there's two? Like, like, how can you say two things at the same? Again, nothing new. Dwight Eisenhower did the same thing. One of uh, Ike's historians, Fred Greenstein, he said, quote, the language of Eisenhower's press conferences was notoriously vague. He wanted to leave journalists unsure of what he just said so i got a little example of that so dwight eisenhower again former supreme allied commander he was president in 1958 and the taiwan strait crisis was going on so taiwan and china were arguing over some islands and area claimed by both nations right doing it again today and the press secretary eisenhower's press secretary said mr president you need to be prepared for a question on this, like on China. And 
specifically on what you're going to do if China invades one of these islands. Like you better be ready for an answer because if you give the wrong answer, then that could trigger a war. So you, we got to talk about this, right? Can you, you, you can imagine the press secretary whose job it is to be prepared for this stuff. You can imagine the press secretary like freaking out. Be like, Mr. President, you better figure this out. And Mr. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower, he just, he wasn't phased at all. And he said, don't worry, Jim. And you can imagine him all cool. And go, don't worry, Jim. If that question comes up, I'll just confuse them. And he did. He was asked, what will you do if China invades Taiwan or one of these islands claimed by Taiwan? And his answer was long-winded and made no sense and contradicted itself. And it ended with something like he knows a lot about war and he'll pray about it. And the reporters were completely confused and China was baffled and they were baffled enough not to invade the islands because they weren't sure how Eisenhower would respond because he just talked about it for four minutes and said nothing. Our president does a lot of that today too, right? He'll, he'll be asked a question and he'll, he uses a different technique. He bores you to death. I'm, I'm not, I don't mean that disparagingly. Like that's a, that's his tactic is to say, well, uh, I think that uh, the best thing uh, for us, to, uh, like this new press conference, that's what he does. It's amazing. Puts everyone to sleep. So Trump does the same thing. He'll say things and the press doesn't know how to respond. And it's really interesting. Like I heard one, um, one report. And he said something, and the reporter just went with it. And I, I said, hold on. Those words didn't make sense. Like, like literally the words in that order didn't. <laughs> and the reporter just, like, accepted it. And it's because the reporters don't want to be seen as dumb, right? They don't want to be... They don't want to make it seem as if, like, well, they're the only one who didn't understand it, so they go, they just go with it, as opposed to saying, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Trump, that didn't make any sense. You want to try that again? Right? Like, like no one's willing just to say that. Hey, all right, all right, let me, let me do this. Before you, you think I'm being um, mean here, this is uh, Trump on CBS just uh, the other day being asked about abortion. Now, put your abortion views aside or whatever, and put your Trump views aside. Just listen to this answer. This... It makes no sense. Clip 502. Let me ask you a question about abortion. What would you do to further restrict women's access to abortions as president? Well, look, look, I just, I mean, I know where you're going, and I just want to say, a question was asked to me, uh, and it was asked in a very hypothetical, and it was said, illegal, illegal. I've been told by some people that was a older line answer, and that was an answer that was given on a you know basis of an older line from years ago, very uh, on a very conservative basis. Uh, but your original answer, you mean? My original, but, but it was. Punishing but I was asked as a hypothetical, hypothetically, hypothetically, uh, the laws are set now on abortion, and that's the way they're going to remain until they're changed. Because you had said you wanted, uh, you told Bloomberg in January that you believed abortion should be banned at some point in pregnancy. Where would you? Well, I, first do of the all, ban? I would have liked to have seen, the, you know, this be a states' rights. I would have, I would have preferred states' rights. I think it would have been better if it were up to the states. Uh, but 
right now the laws are set, and that's the way the laws are. But do you have a feeling how they should change? There are a lot of laws you want to change. You've talked about them on everything from libel to torture. Anything you'd want to change At on abortion? At this moment, the laws are set, and I think we have to leave it that way. Do you think it's murder, abortion? Um, I have my opinions on it, but I'd rather not comment on it. You said you're very pro-life. Pro-life view is pro-life. that it's abortion. Yeah, I'm, I'm abortion pro-life. is murder. Yeah. But I, I, uh, I mean, I do have my opinions on it. I'd rather... I just don't think it's an appropriate forum. But you don't disagree with that proposition that it's murder? What, what proposition? That abortion is murder. No, I don't disagree with it. Okay, listen. Okay, so many things there. The, and the, the first part, he said, a question was, listen to these words. A question was asked to me, and it was asked in a very hypothetical, and it was said, illegal, illegal. And this sentence here makes no sense, at least to me. I've been told by some people that was a older line answer. And that was a answer that was given on a, you know, basis of an older line from years ago on a very conservative basis. What does that mean? I have no idea what that means. And no one does. And that's actually a good example too. The the guy, whoever that is, goes uh just like, like runs with it. It's like, oh, okay, okay, okay. Good response. What? Like, why don't you just say, huh? What's an older line answer from years ago on a very conservative base? I have no idea what that means. No idea. He's just confused, just like like Dwight Eisenhower. Like my goal here in this situation that I'm not comfortable with is just to say things that confuse people, and that's what that is. But then at the end, he did the same thing with abortion. Is abortion murder? He did the same thing with that answer as he did with um, Chris Matthews on will you ever use a nuclear weapon in Europe? And Trump said... You know, no, I'm I'm not going to take anything off the table. And then he said, I'm not going to use nuclear, but I'm not taking cars off the table. He said both things at the same time. So this is what he did at the end there. He said, do you think abortion is murder? The guy said, do you think abortion is murder? And he wouldn't answer. But then at the end, he said, can you, can you play up, Sebastian, can you play up like the last part there? It's so weird. He says he doesn't disagree that abortion is murder. Right, so he said he he won't say it's murder, but then he says he doesn't disagree that it's murder, which I guess is a double negative, which is a way of saying he does agree. So he was able to say it's murder without saying it, right? Like, I, like that's such a. <laughs> so if you're hearing that, what's Donald Trump's view on that question? I guess it's anything you want. Do you have it by any chance? Do you have it pulled up? Yeah, go ahead. I play have it here. My opinions on it, but I'd rather not comment on it. You said you're very pro-life. Pro-life view is pro-life. that it's abortion. No, I, abortion pro-life. is murder. Yeah. But I, I, uh, I mean, I do have my opinions on it. I'd rather, I just don't think it's an appropriate forum. But you don't disagree with that proposition that it's murder. What, what proposition? That abortion is murder. No, I don't disagree with it. So I don't disagree with it. I don't disagree with it, which means you agree with it. But at the beginning, he said he wouldn't say it. So he was able to say it and not say it at the same time, like. It's amazing. I don't know how much longer you can do that. Um, or I, I should say you can only do it sometimes, not not very often. W.C. Fields, he was a comedian in like the 20s and the 30s, uh, he said, or he's credited with saying, if I can't dazzle them with my brilliance, then I will baffle them with my bull. Sometimes Trump dazzles with brilliance, and sometimes he baffles with bull. And I think that was an example of the latter. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater, show the blaze. Radio Network, spread the word. Mike Slater. 
on the Blaze Radio Network. generation of talk radio this is mike slater all right if that sounded negative nancy on the donald let me do a segment here that sounds a little more positive or perhaps uh, i want to talk about sleeper triggers then i think we're done with donald trump for the day uh sleeper triggers just talked about the art of confusion just like dwight eisenhower did uh these are sleeper triggers a term coined by the great scott adams who's been doing a brilliant job from the jump analyzing and dissecting trump's uh really, really trump's use of persuasion which Trump does better than anyone else. So a sleeper trigger is when you make an accusation. Usually it's a bit of a long shot. Um, It's it's something that's a little more out there. But over time, things start to confirm the original prediction or statement or accusation. So you throw something out there. It's like a time-lapsed grenade, right? right? So you throw it, but... Instead of it exploding in 10 seconds, it explodes in like three months, right? <laughs> he just throws it out there, doesn't do anything with it, and then eventually it explodes at just the right time. The sleeper trigger. So a couple examples. So one of the terms that Trump has coined for Hillary is uh, she lacks stamina. Pretty similar to Jeb being low energy, right? Hillary lacks stamina. So a great adjective to use because it's never been used before. And we've talked about that. Um, it's got to be a unique attack. That's how they stick. But that's also a sleeper trigger. So he throws it out there. He says, Hillary lacks stamina. And everyone hears it and they're like, huh, what? And then time goes on and Hillary will lose her voice. As anyone would if they're campaigning as much as these people are. She'll lose her voice for a couple of days. And, and, and then she'll uh, take a couple of days off, take a little a break for a day or two. And she'll do all these things that would otherwise be completely normal. But now people think, huh, I guess Hillary does lack stamina. So everything she does that, again, is otherwise normal feeds into and proves his accusation that she indeed does lack stamina. That is a sleeper trigger. You may have had this used against you in the past pretty basic example is um someone will say uh oh that charlie you're charlie in this example that charlie he is uh he's a terrible employee he is always late for meetings and you're thinking what i'm never late for meetings i'm always here i'm the first one here every day i'm here half an hour before anyone else so you just you put it aside and everyone sort of brushes it aside they're like huh that's weird okay whatever and they move on Three months later, your car breaks down on the way to work. But it's okay because you left so early because you're always the first one there. You call someone up and they, they drive you to work, a friend or spouse. Or and uh, you get there, but you show up to a big meeting three minutes late. You know that that person is going to be there. And you know that that person is going to go to the person next to him and go, See? told you he's always late and then everyone's gonna say oh yeah he is always late (laughs) it's the first time you've been late doesn't matter the trigger has already been laid 
He does it all the time. Trump does it all the time. He lays these landmines all over the place. Hillary lacks stamina. And then every time she does something, anything, where she acts like a 68-year-old woman, everyone's up, see? Look at that. Lacks stamina. Another example with policy. Trump lays these out. So so one of his um, biggest issues, obviously, is the border, but not just the border, but terrorist attacks. Terrorist attacks and its connection to the border. And he said a year or so ago, or he thought a year or so ago, that there would be a very high chance that there would be some terrorist attack somewhere at some time before the election. And sure enough, there was one in San Bernardino and another in Belgium. And I'm sure there'll be another one. And he's sure there's going to be another one. Because he made terrorism and the border his issue, right from the jump, every terrorist attack moving forward, people are going to say, Donald was right. Donald Trump was right. That's a sleeper trigger that he laid. Now, if there's a terrorist attack, no one's going to say Ted Cruz was right, even though Ted Cruz has border security, right? I mean, it's his one of his policy things. But people are going to go run to Donald Trump because Donald Trump laid that sleeper trigger before anyone else, or, or in a different way than it, more powerfully than anyone else. I should say. Right here, another example is remember, um, right in the beginning of his campaign, he talked about waterboarding people, and everyone freaked out like, oh my god. Well, right after the Belgium terrorist attack, he said we should waterboard people. No one blinked an eye. With every terrorist attack, Trump looks less crazy. That was why I wasn't watching The View, but I saw a clip of The View. You may have seen it on The Blaze. It was right after Belgium, right? And one of the people on The View, one of the ladies on The View said, oh, you know what? I can't believe it, but I'm, I'm actually starting to agree with Donald Trump on this issue, right? That she's the victim of a sleeper trigger. So he's laying them out there. See if, see if you get caught up in one of them, right? Something happens and you're like, wow, there it is. You know, let's say there's a, uh, someone gets attacked or killed by a illegal immigrant again, like what happened in San Francisco. Everyone's going to run to Donald Trump. That's a sleeper trigger that he laid these little persuasion landmines and he has planted them everywhere. one 933 one 1-888-933-93. Um, should we come back with the curly effect? Should we do that? Hmm. Maybe we will. It's a term that, it's a concept you've thought of many times before, but two Harvard professors a couple of years ago put a name to it. Maybe we'll describe that next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. I'm sorry, I want to do the uh, curly effect in the next hour, if that's okay. We'll kick off the uh, uh, the next hour with that. I want enough time to uh, to spell that out completely. Uh, I want to tell another story here. So last hour, we talked about minimum wage a little bit. Uh, we've made the economic arguments a million times. I, it's just... Uh, <laughs> Jerry Brown... I don't, I don't, I'm hesitant to even go into this. But Jerry Brown, governor of California, raised it to $15 an hour in California over the next six years. I'll stop it right there because I could go on forever about it. It's so frustrating. Uh, I made a video about it on our Facebook page. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Please share that. I think it's our most viewed video we've ever put up. Um, 
which is great. So please, you can check that out. Um, but I said something before, right at the end, I said, you know, Jerry Brown admitted when he signed the bill that it makes no economic sense. He said that. He said it makes no economic sense, but we're doing it anyway. <laughs> what? And it just proves this difference, this chasm between utopia land and reality. And clearly they're in utopia land. And, and the people who uh, are going to be hurt the most are the very people who it's supposed to help, right? Right. They say, oh, we're going to help people who you know don't have a lot of education or a lot of experience or a lot of skills. We're going to help them by raising the minimum wage. No, they're going to be hurt the most. And they know it. And we talked about why Jerry Brown really did it earlier. It's about a guaranteed minimum income. But anyway, um, I believe they did it because it feels good. And I think, I think a lot of people support the minimum wage raising it just because it feels good. Good. If you present the real arguments uh, to to anyone who supports minimum wage, most people will will come around and say, "Okay, I mean, you're right. Uh, there's better ways to raise wages, uh, not not through government force." But it feels good, and that's why people support it in the short run. So I believe that there are certain things that are easy and might even make sense in the short term, and things that feel good, but in the long term bring death and destruction. And I think there are things that are very difficult in the short term that bring life and happiness. Got a story here from Marcus Brotherington. It's a story of prisoners in a Japanese prison camp during World War II. Ernest Gordon was a commander of a a Scottish infantry battalion. He was 24 years old at the time. And uh, him and his men were taken over by the Japanese, and they were put in a, a prison camp. And, and the Japanese were brutal to their prisoners. Have you ever seen the movie Unbroken? Story of uh, Louis Zamperini. I loved it. I, I went to some people who didn't haven't seen it, and uh, or no, I said they did see it, but they didn't like it. I said, "What do you mean? Like, oh, I didn't think it was a great movie. Like, whatever. Don't focus on the movie. Like, there's a little tiny glimpse into the life of Louis Zamperini, one of the greatest Americans ever." And if you don't like the movie, read the book. I'm just grateful that this movie was made just to give a, to shine a little light on, on his life. But anyway, if you've seen the movie, you know the scenes at the end where they're in a slave labor camp, right? So basically the same thing for Gordon and his men. They were put in this camp, starved to death, beaten, diseased everywhere, worked dusk to dawn. Uh, it's, it's shocking how depraved the Japanese were, were during uh, World War II. So if you imagine yourself there, it's not hard to imagine that morale breaks down pretty quickly and it did and it became a game of looking out for yourself right? looking out for number one only so gordon the commander he, he wrote afterwards he said nothing mattered except to survive we lived by the law of the jungle survival of the fittest it was a case of i look out for my myself and to heck with everyone else The weak were trampled underfoot. The sick were ignored and resented. The dead forgotten. All restraints of morality were gone. That's how they lived in this slave labor camp. Every man for himself. Then something happened. They don't know what exactly. But they decided 
that this wasn't working. That survival of the fittest, that the laws of the jungle weren't working as they hoped. And they decided that instead of everyone eating as much as they could, you got to get yours, right? They decided that we're going to pool all of our food together and we're going to give extra food to the people who are the sickest and the hungriest. We're going to be more selfless when it comes to food. There wasn't much of it. Not only that, but we're going to show compassion. Now we're all suffering here, but those who are the sickest, we're going to work to take care of them. Even Gordon became sick. Everyone thought he was going to die. And, and, and even though they thought the two men, two men volunteered to visit him every day to wash his wounds. But those two men were half a step away from their deathbed as well. It didn't matter. We're going to show compassion to everyone. And then one night when the work was done, the Japanese counted the tools Counted the shovels that were used. And one of the Japanese guards told the commander, the Japanese commander, that one of the shovels went missing. Now you can imagine that, you know, if there were any tools missing at the end of the night, then uh, the, that act was punishable by death, right? Because they thought you might use it to use it as a weapon or use it to, to escape or something like that. So this is punishable by death and one of the shovels is missing and they didn't know who was responsible for it. So they had all the prisoners line up. And the commander said that if no one admits to stealing the shovel, everyone dies. And he pointed the rifle, his rifle at a few of the men with his finger on the trigger. And everyone knew that they were serious because they've seen him do worse. Right? So you can imagine the Japanese commander says, if you don't step forward, if, this, if you didn't take this shovel, take a shovel, right? And miss a shovel, if you're not responsible, and you, if you don't step forward right now, I'm killing these men over here. Finally, a man stepped forward. He said, I did it. And the guard instantly just unleashed his fury on this man. And he beat the pulp out of him with his rifle. And the man finally passed out. And the Japanese guy took the butt of his rifle and smashed the man's skull. And right when he did that, another guard entered the room and pulled the commander inside and said, sir, We miscounted. We have all the shovels. That one man stepped forward and died so that everyone else in the group could live. Gordon later wrote, he said, it was dawning on us all that the law of the jungle is not the law for man. He said, we were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and those that made for death, selfishness, hatred, envy, jealousy, greed, self-indulgence, laziness, pride. They were all anti-life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, Faith, on the other hand, they were all essence of life, turning mere existence into living in its truest sense. Those were the gifts of God to men. Fascinating case study to see these men in the worst of possible conditions, right? World War II slave labor camp. 
And they tried it both ways. They lived every man for himself. They succumbed to the environment they were put in. And then they decided to live a different way. Overcoming the environment they were put in. One brings death, one brings life. Love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity, faith. Uh, I mean, we could talk politics if you want. You know, I, I could say you decide which candidate represents those things the best. But I'm not going to say that because I don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that we are electing a savior. Because if we fall into that trap, then we think that we can outsource those things to that person and then we don't have to be those things. But I would be wary of voting for someone who shows selfishness, greed, self-indulgence, and pride. Not my advice. The advice of these World War II veterans. one 888 Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. We've got a few minutes. I want to play this clip here of uh, Neil Cavuto. Uh, and and she's, he's talking to a woman, uh, Naquisha Legrand, uh, one of the women who uh, leading the fight for the $15 an hour movement. She won. Uh, all right, let's play. It's just a minute long here. What you're saying, and I understand your frustration. You want to get paid more. A lot of you want to get paid more. But do you ever worry that it could boomerang on you? A lot of these restaurants, McDonald's included, are automating services, kiosks now that used to have people. Now all that automated. Uh, the food line is automated. We're seeing this in scores of places where to cut back on, on the cost of labor, uh, everyone from fast food franchises to retail sto- stores are doing that. Are you afraid that you're going to speed that process up and push yourself right out of a job? Not at all. McDonald's been around a long time. If they didn't want people in their store, they would have been replaced us with robots. Nobody wants to come and McDonald's. But they and are. Talk to a they machine. are going that way. You see, and even before we got to fifteen dollars, they've been doing that. And we're still there because they need us. And we're and as those machines. There, no, actually, they're scaling. Are still no, there. what I meant to tell you is they're scaling back their workers. Don't you think an environment like this might push them to do more of that? And then, you know, it, it, it could be so dramatic, so fast that you won't know what hit you. And a lot of your colleagues you're fighting hard to support and get them higher wages could find themselves out on the unemployment line. That's not going to stop us from fighting what we, what we, what we deserve, because we deserve $15 an hour and the right to unionize. And that's not going to stop us, no matter what McDonald's want to push back then onto let's, us. Let's take McDonald's out of it if we can. Okay, so we, we can stop it there, actually. So, um, we don't have enough time to talk about automation. You you know it. You get it. You've probably seen it, right? There's machines. There's stores already where you just order by kiosk. Uh, we did a whole video on this on um, our Facebook page. You can search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Uh, but there's no doubt in uh, two to four years, there won't be any more people working at fast food restaurants. Momentum machines, they have a machine. Uh, it's 24 square feet, so it's much smaller than the current automation, uh, um, current line. Um 
slices the pickles and onions right before they put them on your burger so it's fresher. They can make an entire burger in 10 seconds, 100% efficiency, 100% accuracy, uh, never takes vacation, goes on strike, needs a break, spits in your food, sues for discrimination. No people. So there will be restaurants where there's no people soon. Um, just like when you go to a bowling alley, there's no more bowling alley pin setters. Right? There's no more switchboard operators when you use your phone, right? So this job that Nikwisha has working at a Burger King will not last forever, but she can't accept that. And if you raise the wage to minimum $15, obviously it's going to be a lot quicker than it otherwise would be. She thinks she deserves $15 an hour. Here's the key, and this is what I would tell Nikwisha to think about. The way to raise your wage and the way to have job security, there's one word. You have to be indispensable. Indispensable. Matthew Henson, one of the greatest Arctic explorers. Now, if you ask most people to say Robert Peary is the most famous Arctic explorer, he made seven trips from 1886 to 1909, but the only man who was there with him on every one of them was Matthew Henson. Matthew Henson was indispensable. Peary was the leader, but Henson was indispensable. He was the one who spoke the Eskimo language. He built and fixed the sleds. He knew everything. I want to read this from, uh, this is from Booker T. Washington, who uh, wrote the intro to his biography. During the 23 years in which he was the companion of the explorer, he not only had time and opportunity to perfect himself in the knowledge of the books, but he acquired a good practical knowledge of everything that was a necessary part of the daily life in the ice-bound wilderness of polar exploration. He was at times a blacksmith, a carpenter, and a cook. He was thoroughly acquainted with the life, customs, and the language of the Eskimos. He built the sleds which with, with which the journey to the pole was successfully completed. He could not merely drive a, do- a dog team or skin a musk ox with the skill of a native but he was something of a navigator as well. In this way, Mr. Henson made himself not only the most trusted, but the most useful member of the expedition. I should also note that Henson was a black man. Late 1800s, early 1900s. And on this expedition. Point is, he was indispensable. Peary couldn't imagine not having him on his team. He'd pay him anything. He'd do anything. He'd never fire him. He was indispensable. Fast food workers, Nequisha, fast food workers are dispensable. Two years from now, there will only be a fraction of them remaining. And we will wonder, why did we ever even live in a world where you go to a fast food restaurant and you tell someone, you're, I'll tell my son who doesn't exist yet, I'll tell my son in how many years, uh, we'll bring him to a fast food place and I'll say, son, when I was your age, we used to have to tell a human our order and they would punch it into a screen. And, and they'll say, why? Why would, why would you have to tell someone? Why don't you just do it yourself? I don't know. That's how we used to do it. And I'll say, yeah, there used to be people who would actually make your burger by hand. And they'll say, why? The machine does it so much better. $15 an hour only hastens that day. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. How are you? Thank you for being here. Happy Saturday. Um, today's been a little bit different of a show than normal at times. Um, approaching the line of conspiracy. Not, not real. Not, not there. Not there yet. I guess the first two segments I made a prediction about Donald Trump and the presidential race. That's not a conspiracy. That's a prediction. So someone wrote on Twitter, they said, Slater, I've always thought that Trump went into the race to... Um, sabotage the Republican Party so Hillary wins. No, no, no. That that's a conspiracy. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. What we did was not a conspiracy. Prediction. Second hour, we talked about uh, minimum wage. Jerry Brown, minimum wage, raising it to fifteen dollars here in California. And I talked about the real reason why he did that, which again could uh, sort of teeter on conspiracy, but not really, because Jerry Brown in 1995 said. I believe, he said, quote, I believe we should have fewer jobs and more welfare. That was when he was governor the first time. Now you're thinking, no, maybe he just misspoke. No, no. The sentence before that was, the conventional viewpoint is, we should have more jobs and less welfare. But I disagree. I think we should have fewer jobs and more welfare. So there's no disagreement there. That's what he believed then, and that's what he still believes now. And I believe he raised the minimum wage so that more people would lose their job, more people would go on welfare, the welfare system would be overwhelmed, it would implode, and then we can usher in an era of a guaranteed minimum income. That is the left's ultimate goal. They're going to achieve it the Cloward Cloward Piven style. And uh, overwhelm the system and then have something new rise from the ashes. That is the guaranteed minimum income. That's what Jerry Brown really wants. That's what Hillary Clinton really wants. That's what the left really wants. Get rid of welfare. Replace it with just everyone gets $30,000 no matter what for doing nothing. Switzerland is going to vote on this in June with a referendum. So this isn't a pipe dream. This is what the left truly wants. Guaranteed minimum income. Sometimes it's called big basic income guarantees. Sometimes it's called income or unconditional income. A lot of different names for it. I don't know what the best focus group to name is for it yet, but this is what the left is going to do next. So that's why I believe Jerry Brown raised the minimum wage to purposefully put people on unemployment, put people on welfare so that ultimately we can usher in, he can usher in a guaranteed minimum income. If Hillary Clinton wins, it's going to be the big national issue from the federal government side uh if she doesn't then different states are going to pick it up but that's what's going to happen in the next four years so that that goes a little bit towards the conspiracy side right i guess i mean again he said it in 1995 but i want to do one more story here uh that could could be seen as conspiracy but again i don't think it is i'm just going to come out with this statement right here the goal the goal of politicians and leaders on the left is to make people poor. Slater, why why do you go there? Why, I want to I want to like this show, but it's just that's just too far. It's too far. I can't get on board with a sentence like that. You're telling me there's people in America, politicians who want to make people poor? Mhm. 
I don't want I don't want that to be true, obviously. But I'll tell you, the sooner you accept it, the more things make sense. A few years ago, not everyone. Now let, me, let me put this disclaimer here. I should. My mom is a Democrat. My mom, she thinks Barack Obama hung the moon. She does not want to make people poor. That's why I said the leaders of the left. That's the key, right? Um, my mom, your average Democrat, your friend, your coworker, your best friend, they don't want people to be poor. The leaders of the movement do. That's the big difference there. And I think that's a, a worthy disclaimer to make. A couple of years ago, the minister of education in Venezuela, right? Venezuela, of course, a failed state right now. The minister of education says that the government's policies are, quote, this is a quote, government policies are not meant to take people out of poverty so that they become middle class and then turn into Esqualitos. Esqualitos is the opposition. It's a, their nickname for the opposition party. Right. We, so he says, listen, I don't we don't want government policies to take people out of poverty because then they're just going to become middle class and they're just going to vote for the other guys. That's what he said. That was the minister of education in Venezuela. So that would be like a politician today saying, yeah, the goal of the education system isn't to make kids smarter because then when kids smart, are smarter, then they're going to learn new skills and then they're going to become middle class and then they're going to become Republicans. Right. That's the same thing. So what's the goal then? The goal is to keep people poor and dependent. That's why in 1995, Jerry Brown said he wants a guaranteed annual income. That's the left's goal. The goal is not to help people on minimum wage make more money. The goal is to put them on welfare rolls, overwhelm the system, so that then they can make a case for a guaranteed annual income. I know it's a lot to believe, but I think that's the deal. It's the same thing with Obamacare. The point, the purpose of Obamacare was not to help people, right? It wasn't to improve the health care system or health insurance system. The goal of Obamacare, the expressed purposeful goal of Obamacare was to crash the system, to make health insurance outrageously expensive, to make the whole system unsustainable and complicated and difficult. So that in the next few years, Hillary Clinton in particular can swoop in and say, all right, hold on. This isn't working. This Obamacare thing's not working. This is crazy, way too complicated, way too expensive. Let's just simplify everything and have universal health care for everyone. Right? No questions asked. No exchanges. Just everything's free. Isn't that way easier if we just have everything be free? That's what we're going to do now. Obamacare was a nice attempt. But but it's it's just it's too complicated. Let's just do Medicare for all. That's what they call it now. It focus groups better. Let's just call it Medicare for all. We're going to do that, and everything's going to be great, right? But the only way they can get away with that is if they overwhelm the system first. And that's what Obamacare was. It was a way to overwhelm the system. I guarantee you, guarantee you that. And the same is done with welfare. The goal is to over, overwhelm the system so that they can replace it with a guaranteed minimum income. All right, I want to talk about the Curly effect. I want to do a little more of this in the next segment, but I'll give you a quick little intro here. It's named after Mayor James Michael Curley in Boston. And I bet we have some Boston people listening now who can give us some more insight, perhaps. He was mayor of Boston for four terms in the early and mid-1900s. I think he was also a governor, senator, congressman. I like everything, right? But I want to focus on his time as mayor. Mayor Curley was Irish. Hated. Protestants. 
hated them with a passion. And when he became mayor, he did everything he could to run the Protestants out of the city. Why? First, because he hated them. And B, because he knew if he could kick the Yankees out, then the, only the Irish would remain and they would vote him in office forever. They would keep him in office forever. And they did. And that's exactly what he did. He served two prison terms. One of the terms it was five months when he was in mayor. He was mayor. He was mayor. He was prison for five months and he got out and the people loved him. Mayor Curley purposefully, and this is going to be hard to believe, but purposefully kicked Protestants out of the city. He made life miserable for Protestants and non-Irish in Boston. Quick example, uh, early in World War I, um, so this is when America was still neutral in the war, a British officer arrived in Boston and asked the mayor if he could recruit people to fight for the British. This is World War I, right? Now, the mayor knew that no Irish people would go and fight with the British. He knew that only the wasps would, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. So when the British officer says, hey, can we recruit people in your city? The mayor said, go ahead, Colonel, take every damn one of them. He was talking about the Protestants. Take them all. We don't want them. Take them all. He called the non-Irish in his city a strange and stupid race, and he did everything he could to kick him out of Boston so that he would be reelected time and time again. And it worked. He served four years or four terms as mayor. Two Harvard professors wrote a long paper in 2002, uh, calling this the Curly Effect. The Curly Effect. It happens in cities all across the country, all around the world. And it's happening right now in California in particular. I say California because I live here and because of the minimum wage being raised here. But it's happening in democratic cities all across the country. The goal is to, this is the Curly Effect. As stated by these two Harvard professors, the goal is to kick out the opposition, which increases your share of the voter base. Then, does that, make, does that part make sense? So let's say there's 10 people in the city. Five of them are for you. Five of them are against you. The goal is to kick out the five who are against you. And that way there's, let's say there's seven who now remain, five are for you, two are against you. You're going to win that election every time. Makes sense, right? So that's the step one. Then step two is to do everything you can to keep those people who remain dependent on you so that they'll vote for you for life no matter what. So minimum wage is another example of that. In the sense that we're going to kick businesses out of California. And I'll explain this more in the next segment. We're going to kick businesses out of California. The people who remain, we're going to keep them dependent on us forever. And because of that, the Democrats will remain the supermajority party in California for decades to come. They are right now. They have a supermajority in both the House and the Assembly. And there's not a single district, state district, in California that has any potential to flip from Democrat to Republican. It's impossible. It's so gerrymandered and so set up that Republicans can't win in California. And they're just making, they're kicking out anyone who would possibly vote Republican, vote conservative. They're kicking those people out, making it impossible for them to live here in the first place. And the people who remain, they're making them as dependent as possible. And it's all so that they can remain in power. 
I want to explain more about the Curly effect. It's not. I, I didn't outline it. It's these two Harvard professors. They outlined it. I'll do a little more detail of that coming up next. one 3393 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater is on. Slater, because I just want to talk a little more about this uh, curly effect. It's what the Harvard professors called it in their paper in two thousand two. Y- you've thought of this before, I'm sure, um, but it has a name. <laughs> you probably didn't know. It is the process of gaining power, winning an office, then actively kicking out of your district or city people who disagree with you which strengthens the amount of support that you have, right? The people who remain. And this keeps you in power. And then the second step is to keep those people who remain dependent on you. So a lot of examples of this. Mayor Curley in Boston was the most blatant, uh, or Boston in the early and mid-1900s. That's why it's called the Curley effect. Irish man hated the Protestants, hated them, called them an ugly and stupid race, did everything he could to kick them out of Boston. So now you're wondering how. All right, let's get to some details. So first of all, little things and big things, right? So first, where he spent government money. He would only build buildings and parks in certain areas of the city, and he let other areas deteriorate. He would build uh, parks and piers in Irish neighborhoods, and he would improve the roads and the sidewalks and the sewers and everything else in Irish neighborhoods and he would let the Protestant areas crumble. He would build new hospitals and government buildings only in Irish neighborhoods and give jobs to the Irish people, and he would keep the Protestants out. He wouldn't build anything new. He wouldn't do any infrastructure work at all in the Protestant areas. And if Protestants applied for jobs, he would actively keep them out of them. Now, there were some jobs that when he entered that Protestants had. Usually they were the higher level jobs. Right, and the Irish people had the lower level jobs. So when he was mayor, he cut salaries for the higher level positions across the board, and he raised the salaries for the lower level employees, which were again mostly the Irish people. Now, so so those are, I mean, I think those are important. I mean, you could say those are little things, but I mean, there's a, a very purposeful bias there, to say the least. But it was the rhetoric too, which is important. Um, he wasn't shy about doing this. I'm not. It's not like people are looking back at this and be like, well, look, maybe maybe he did it because he didn't like the Protestant. Like, no, no. Um, he always, he'd rail against the, quote, inhumane numbskullery of the Yankee overlords. He said, the day of the Puritan has passed. The Anglo-Saxon is a joke. A newer and better American is here. And he said that Boston is going to be full of a virile, intelligent, God-fearing, patriotic people like the Irish. Right, so it's very, it's very clear. He didn't want any Protestants in the city. These Harvard professors talk about uh, Mayor Coleman Young. He did the same thing when he was mayor of Detroit. Uh, but the goal was to kick out wealthy white people. This was in the 70s. And he was successful at that as well. So my argument is, and that these uh, professors stop 
Well, they, they do some international examples too, but they stop at Mayor Curley, who said, I'm, I, we're going to benefit the Irish. We're going to kick out the Protestants. Mayor Young, who said, uh, I'm, we're going to kick out white people. We're only here for black people. We're going to kick out the white people. I would argue that Jerry Brown in California is doing the same thing to conservatives and particularly business owners. Now, before you say, before you put common sense into this and you say, well, Slater, hold on. Why would someone want to kick out business owners and then put more people on welfare? How is that sustainable? You can't bring your common sense to this conversation. It's not about that. This isn't about common sense. Like the left isn't like, well, they're not thinking about it. They don't care. They, they just want to stay in power. And it doesn't even matter if things get worse, right? So, so the, the Harvard professors who write about this, they say that Boston got horrible. Like, like Boston was worse off because of this. Even the Irish were worse off. So it's not about improving the city. It's not about improving people's lives, even the lives of those who remain. It's about power. It's about staying in power. That's all that matters. So Jerry Brown kicks out the businesses, kicks out business owners, kicks out the entrepreneurs. I'll give you one example. I mean, there's a ton. I mean, water's one example. Um, we're going to kick out the farmers. We're going to kick out people who are uh, on the red parts of the state, which is all the state except for anything touching the ocean. Um, I can't wait for California to be in play, by the way. It's such a fascinating state election-wise. So it'll be fun for the, the whole country to, to study it. Anyway, um, cap and trade. California is the only state in the country that has cap and trade. It costs California businesses a billion dollars. So it's a billion dollar tax on businesses for no reason. Doesn't do anything to, to affect the environment at all. Literally doesn't do anything. I mean, businesses are still spewing out as much CO2 as they were before. They just now have to pay a ton of money for it. And we don't have time to break down all of cap and trade, but you get the gist of it, right? So it's not about improving the environment. It's about sticking it to businesses, kicking them out. It's, it, you know, I know you've thought before, you think, gosh, if politicians sat down and tried to come up with a, with a regulation or a law that would hurt businesses, they couldn't do any better than whatever they just came up with, right? Cap and trade, like if they sat down and come up with something that said, what can we do that's horrible for businesses? Cap and trade would be like, it couldn't do any better than that. And it's weird because we, we give them the benefit of the doubt. And we say, well, gosh, it's not like they tried to do that. No, no, no. They did. They did. And these Harvard professors have highlighted times in our history and world history where leaders have done that. They've specifically set out to write bad policy in order to change the electorate to help them get reelected. And again, every time it's been done, everyone is hurt. Obviously, you know, the Protestants in, in Boston, the white people in um, Detroit and business owners in California, but also the Irish in Boston, the blacks in Detroit and poor people in uh, in California. But they don't care. The goal is to stay in power. The curly effect. Something to keep in mind. Yeah. Coming up next, I want to come back with uh, an amazing story of regret and redemption. We'll share it next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network.
This is Mike Slater. Slater, Uh I want to share this story here, the follow-up to a story we shared a while back. Uh, January 28th, a couple months ago, was the 30th anniversary of the Challenger uh, disaster, Challenger explosion. And when that day came around, we did a, a, our humble tribute to those in that shuttle uh, and our space program in general, right? We just celebrated the lives of our explorers, our adventurers, maybe the greatest explorers in human history. So funny how we take it for granted or we don't even think twice about it. Have you seen Apollo 13? Sure you have. Uh, I saw it recently again, the 10th time. And I love the scene where when they got into space, they did uh they were doing a TV show from space, right? And all the networks were supposed to carry it and none of them did. Right? And the family was upset that they and but they didn't tell the astronauts that they didn't air it. It wasn't exciting enough. And then when it's there started to be a disaster and all the news crews were out front of the family's house, and the the one the main astronaut's wife said, "Oh, now you care. Now you care about the space program just cuz there's something wrong." It's human nature. Right commentary there, but the fact that we you know people get launch people into space, we're just like, bah, whatever. <laughs> what? Jeez. So we celebrated the lives of our explorers. Um, talked about how Big Bird was supposed to be on the Challenger space shuttle. Right, the White House wanted more kids to be interested in space, so they had Big Bird all ready to go, and they, they started training and all that. But he was. Uh, they found out that the the Big Bird was too tall to fit in the shuttle. So they scrapped that and instead they started a nationwide search to find a teacher. And that's why it was a bunch of astronauts and a teacher. It was supposed to be Big Bird. We've talked before about Gene Kranz. He was the flight director when the three astronauts died in the training for Apollo 1. Uh, Talked about the the flight director of Columbia who took, Columbia, not uh, Challenger, Columbia, who took complete blame for what happened there. He said, I should have known there was going to be a problem. He said, I did not stand up and, and I wasn't counted. And I love this line. He says, I have no idea what the court of law or a congressional inquiry will find, but I stand condemned in the court of my own conscience. So Gene Kranz and that other flight director, just pinnacle of accountability, which we don't see a lot of anymore. All right. So I want to share one last story here. Bob was an engineer on the Challenger shuttle again, 30 years ago. The day before the launch, he and four other engineers tried to stop it. Imagine that, right? You got the, everyone's all excited for the launch, ready to go. And Bob and four other engineers get together and they say, God, we got, we got to stop this. We can't do this. What do we do? What do we do? We, we, know, we know something's going to go wrong. We got to go tell people. We got to go tell the bosses. So they run and they go tell the bosses and they tell them what's going to happen. They tell them that the, ch- the challenger is going to explode. These engineers knew about the the rubber O-rings, as they called them. So the fuel tanks were stacked on top of each other, and they were connected by these rubber rings. And during the launch, the cans are pulled apart a little bit, and the rubber rings keep them together. But in cold weather, these engineers knew that the rubber would crack, or would get hard, and then it would crack. And the seal would be broken, and the fuel tanks would explode. This launch was the coldest launch that was ever attempted. So Bob Ebeling... One of the engineers, he went to his superiors, told them what was going to happen. And they said, oh, Bob, we'll be fine. So Bob went home and he's laying in bed with his wife that night. And he says, he says to her, he says, 
it's going to blow up. And it did the next morning. Bob's 89 years old. Still breaks down every time he thinks about it. Ever since that day, he has suffered from deep depression. The burden of guilt has weighed on him for these last 30 years that he couldn't stop the shuttle launch. And he keeps saying to himself over and over, I could have done more. I should have done more. Listen to this heartbreaking line uh, from Bob. I think that was one of the mistakes that God made. He shouldn't have picked me for that job. I don't know. But next time I talk to him, I'm going to ask him, why me? You picked a loser. Oh, Bob. Bob, oh my gosh, 30 years, 30 years it's been crushing him. God, why did you pick a loser for this job? Now, the other four engineers, for all these years, they, they said, Bob, listen, we talked to the right people. We, we did everything we could. We did everything we could to stop the launch. And Bob couldn't shake it. Now, NPR, credit where it's due, they told Bob's story. And people all across the country sent Bob letters. Letters like, Bob, you presented the correct data and blew the whistle. You are not a loser. You are a challenger. (laughs) I love that line. That's great. Bob, you're not a loser. You are a challenger. Someone said, Bob, the definition of a loser is someone that doesn't do anything or worse yet, they don't care. But you did something and you did care. That's the definition of a winner. Thousands of letters like that. Right? He's 89. His eyes are bad. And his daughter would read every single letter to him. So imagine this. 30 years of crushing guilt finally starting to melt away one letter at a time. His daughter said he's had a turnaround in his feelings of guilt about the deaths of the Challenger astronauts. We as his family love all of you and are grateful that you have contacted us. I've read every one of your messages to my dad. He is letting go of the guilt that he has held on to for 30 years. It is a miracle from God and from all the people who have written to us. My dad does not have much time left and your words are easing his mind. Bob just passed away. His final public words were to everyone who wrote him a letter. He said, thank you. You helped bring my worrisome mind to ease. He found peace right before he passed away. We all have regrets. We've all made small and big mistakes that we regret. Perhaps you may even have crushing guilt like Bob had. It took Bob 30 years for it to melt away. Now, I don't know. I just hope for Bob's sake, and again, reason, logic doesn't make sense here, but I hope that he knows what happened in Challenger taught a generation of engineers about safety and ethics. 
right? It, it, it inspired an entirely new standard of excellence. As John Glenn, astronaut, he said, I guess the question I'm, I'm most often asked is that when you're sitting in that capsule listening to the countdown, how do you feel? And he says, well, the answer to that one's easy. I felt exactly how you would feel if you were getting ready to launch and you knew that you were sitting on top of two million parts, all built by the lowest bidder on a government contract. That's just the nature of the beast. And Bob was up against it. That's the first thing. But I hope we can all learn lessons from Bob. Where in your life? I was going to say, you know, where do you have regret? I don't need to ask that question. You know it. If you're listening to the story now, you have it. You know it. I didn't have to remind you of it. What can we do to melt it away? What can you do? What can be done? Where in your life, maybe, with your, your friends or family, where do you know of something that is, is going to blow up? Where you need to be counted. Right? Where Bob, Bob said, this isn't going to work. I got to stand up. He did. Where do you need to do that? Where do you need to be counted? Maybe it's personal things. Maybe it's for our country. Right? This, this campaign, this election, presidential election. It is not the most important thing in the world. It's a very important thing. Please don't get me wrong. But we need to be counted in our own way. And if you do have guilt or regret for something, there's always time for repentance and forgiveness. Just ask Bob. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. listening to Mike Slater. Ah, perfect. I got six minutes and I don't want to talk politics anymore. Um, can I share another story? It's, I know we already shared one story today about uh, Japanese prisoners of war, but uh, this one I just heard the other day for the first time and, I, and I'm mad at myself that, that I haven't heard of this place before. I heard of this whole thing before. First of all, please make sure that your kids know about the Bataan Death March. If every kid learned about the Bataan Death March, there'd be a lot less whining in our culture. World War II, march of 80,000 POWs, 85 miles in six days. No food or water. I talked to one of the guys who were on this march. I think they were given one bit of rice the entire time. But the water was whatever they could find on the side of the road. And if they drank from it and they were caught, they'd be shot on the spot. And if they drank from it and they weren't caught, they'd die of dysentery. Or any other number of diseases from the filthy water. So, do you drink from it? Do you not drink? What do you do? Amazing. I want to tell another story of POWs. Um, 552 of them, to be exact. They were in a slave labor camp. It was called Cabana Tuan. Barbed wire enclosed prison camp. And the POWs were in this camp for almost three years. And just as brutal as the march. Many of the men were there from the Bataan Death March. So the Americans decided to try and liberate the men from this camp. And this is this their story that I've never heard before. It's crazy. Have you ever heard of Cabana Tuan? I've never heard of it. 
Everyone needs to know about it. Here's the very short of it. The 6th Ranger Battalion was in charge. There were 133 Americans and 250 Filipinos who were helping out. The plan was a nighttime assault. So one group was going to enter the camp from the back, another from the front. At just the right time, one of the giant P-61 Black Widow planes flew over the, the camp in order to distract the Japanese guards. So as it's flying overhead, the Americans crawled a mile across open ground without being seen. Think about that. A mile's a long way. And they crawled on the ground so that they wouldn't be seen as the, the plane was distracting the Japanese guards. When they got close, one of the Americans fired the first shot at the guards. And that was the signal to commence the full attack. So they did. Totally rushed the camp. Took out the guard towers. Took out the pillboxes. Killed any Japanese soldier they could see. And these rangers stormed this compound. Can you imagine? Now, here's the best part. The Filipino guerrillas. They were stationed a few miles away. There were two, two groups. They reached station in different directions, a couple miles away. When they heard the start of the attack, their job was to blow up the bridge so that other Japanese soldiers couldn't come and provide reinforcements. All right, so there are two different bridges that had to be knocked out. Worked perfectly. But on one of the bridges, some of the Japanese could still make it across. But the guerrillas were there in wait. Not a single Japanese reinforcement made it through. So the Americans found where the POWs were kept. By the way, there were no, they couldn't rehearse this. They couldn't practice this. There was really no intel about it. They had one shot and this is what they did. So they, they didn't know where the POWs were, but they found them. Now the POWs in there, they're delirious. They didn't know if they were being freed or if they were being led to slaughter. They had no idea. Every Japanese soldier was killed. And the Americans started another march. The men were lined up for a mile long. And they kept marching for 14 hours. And imagine you know, how they were on the verge of death. They were as weak and as frail as possible. They were on the verge of death to begin with. And then they go on a 14-hour march. But they made it because this time it was a march towards freedom. One of the POWs said, I made the death march from Bataan, so I'm certainly going to make this one. 133 rangers, with the help of the guerrillas at the bridges, 133 rangers killed 1,000 Japanese soldiers and successfully freed every single one of the 552 POWs. And only two Americans were killed in the liberation. The most successful liberation of POWs in American history. Cabana Tuan, I've never heard of it. I think of the men in, in the camp who had to hang on every day for nearly three years praying for this day to come. I think of the Alamo scouts doing their recon in enemy territory. How did they do that? And of course, the Rangers for executing with flawless perfection. I love this line here from uh, Captain Prince. He was in charge of the, the Rangers. He said afterward, he said, people everywhere try to thank us, but I think the thanks should go the other way. I will be grateful for the rest of my life that I had a chance to do something in this war that was not destructive. Nothing for me can ever compare with the satisfaction I got from helping to free our prisoners. 
Here's to hope. Here's to never leaving a man behind. And here's to the men of the 6th Ranger Battalion and the liberation of Cabana Tuan. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Hope we can stay in touch the rest of the week. Till then, we'll see you next Saturday. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.